You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's the advice you always hear before giving a public talk. Open with a joke. The right joke can get you off to a roaring start, although this guy would probably settle for a sputtering one. In our galaxy... There are roughly a trillion planets. And while most of those will be worthless, like Mercury or Neptune, which never have been big in your life, it can't be that all of them are worthless. If so, you're a miracle, okay? And I know you like to think you're a miracle. That's the fault of your mom. But the facts are (laughs) that astronomy has a long history of believing in miracles. You always begin with a joke, do you? Well, I don't always begin with a joke, but I always insert jokes. Well, I, actually, I do begin with a joke. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that because it, it makes the science go down more smoothly? Yes, I think it does. Actually, it keeps me awake, too. There's that. But I do find that audiences will pay attention a little bit more. And when they come up afterwards, ask questions, they say, well, you know, I enjoyed that or I learned something. But, you know, the humor kept me paying attention. So it seems like a safe bet. Using humor is a great way to connect with others. People love to laugh and they respond to emotion. In fact, these days we hear more about paying attention to our emotional quotient, our EQ, rather than our IQ as a way to keep an audience engaged or simply succeed in life. It's often a more effective way to hook an audience. Hollywood will generally shun complex intellectual ideas in favor of emotional grabbers, eerie music, fist fights, tear-stained faces, and of course, adorable animals. Did you see that? Puddles, the three-legged cocker spaniel, who everyone had given up for dead but was actually limping across the desert for three days without food or water, has leapt from that patch of tumbleweed to kill a rattlesnake that was about to bite Cowboy James. Get him, Puddles, get him! (laughs) Well, go dog, go. Who cares if it makes sense? Even newscasters know that emotion can trump import, favoring stories of police car chases over tax code revisions, all to keep you from switching the channel. Emotional appeals, they're a shortcut to a human connection, after all. Emotions are universal, except they may not be. What you think is amusing might perturb your neighbor, and even what you think is a smiling face might actually signal a physical threat. So just how emotionally attuned are you? I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, where we step back to give you the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode the science and the technology that are helping scientists sort out human emotion. I have to say, as an aside, Molly, I happen to love the use of cheap emotional ploys to snag an audience. Hi, I'm Gary Niederhoff, a producer on Big Picture Science. You know, I spend hours toiling to make this radio show the best I know how. Sure, it doesn't leave me much time for my family. My cat never sees me, and my back aches from the long days. But that's okay. I have medication, and also, this show means everything to me. See, I grew up without radio, and at any rate, I hope you'll keep listening. Thanks. Emotional ploys can be transparent, although I think that one brought tears to my eyes. But one thing that works almost always is getting people to laugh. I mean, who doesn't love laughing? In fact, sometimes we smile when it's inappropriate to do so. Yeah, well, I laugh at my friend's political views. I laughed when I got evicted the second time. But now, and now I'm laughing, but now we may have insight into why we do. To put it another way... A guy walks into a bar with a book under his arm. He sets the book in front of the bartender, and the bartender asks, What's that for? And the guy says, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and this is the book I wrote about the science of why we laugh. And the bartender pauses and he says, that's not very funny. And the cognitive neuroscientist says, 
No, but I can tell you what is. My name is Scott Weems, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist with the University of Maryland. Scott Weems knows not just why we laugh, but what's going on in our brains when we do. Okay, Scott, you've been talking to a number of journalists about humor, and in each case, they've asked you to tell a joke. But can we see if we can get you to laugh? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, here's Brian Mallow. Two bacteria walk into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve bacteria here. The bacteria say, but we work here. We're staff. Okay, a joke from comedian Brian Mallow. He specializes in science humor. Well, Scott, uh, you could certainly hear that the audience liked the joke about the bacterial (laughs) staff. Why or why not was that funny to you? I mean, you can be honest here. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, I think it's funny. The the audience laughed and they moaned a little bit, too. I mean, it was a mixed but positive reaction. It was funny because, I mean, there's a whole history of people walking into a bar jokes. And you just hear that setup and you expect a joke. So I bet people will laugh at most any sort of setup that begins with, you know, two so-and-so as they're walking in a bar. And so I think the staff, that was kind of clever. I liked it. I laugh. I think it's following a standard formula that pretty much gets laughed in most cases anyway. And the other thing is, of course, it's somewhat of a pun. And puns have a reputation for being not a high form of humor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's almost the simplest form of humor. You can even get computers to tell those kind of jokes. And it's fascinating, too, because you're essentially making associations when you're telling that kind of joke, which is what most humor involves. All right. But you did laugh. And so when you did, when you were chuckling over this this joke, what was happening in your brain? Well, it turns out, without getting too technical, uh, there's one region of the brain that's particularly important, and it's called the anterior cingulate. And it's essentially our conflict detector. So this is the part of the brain. Anytime we're confused or we're kind of expecting something and all of a sudden jerked a different way, this is the part of the brain that resolves that. It lights up, it gets very active, and it tries to make sense of what's going on. And so that's what humor is a lot of the time is you you get some expectation and then you're jolted out of it. And this part of the brain is important for making that happen. You mentioned conflict. Maybe you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, it's a shame that we often think of conflict as a bad thing, but it's really just whatever happens when we're, we're surprised by something. We expect one thing and we're shown the other. And that causes conflict because you've got some expectation and some actuality. And this happens not just between people, but inside our minds, too. And that's why we laugh at a lot more than just jokes. We enjoy jokes, but we laugh sometimes at funerals and strange events because our brain doesn't know how else to process it. We don't know what else would do. So we're really specialized as humans for dealing with these kind of confusing, conflicting situations. Scott, why do we laugh? I mean, why did we evolve laughter? What what survival value did it offer us? Yeah, it's interesting. We sometimes think that we're the only creatures that laugh, but we certainly aren't. Uh, Because apes laugh, dogs laugh, even rats laugh. Uh, I talked to one researcher, that's what he does for a living, is he tickles rats. And it sounds trivial at first, but it's actually very important because if you can understand what makes a rat laugh, you can understand what makes people laugh and happy. And and so he's looking at that to try and uh, study depression and, and cure people of that. But, I mean, if you look at why animals laugh. Usually it's in these social situations where there's some sort of working out of hierarchies or or social bounds. So two apes that are just meeting each other for the first time, they might grunt and make these, you know, laughing-like motions. And for them, it serves an important social focus. It says, hey, I'm anxious too, and I don't want to hit you with a stick. Uh, Let's get along. And so for humans, I think it serves the same purpose. We live in a broad society, and we don't hit each other with sticks, which is a good thing. So humor basically helps us get along and and share these common moments of anxiety. Okay. Well, I I certainly see uh, chimps in the zoo, you know, making facial expressions that look as if they're kind of laughing, but do they actually tell jokes? I mean, <laughs> do, they, do they have that, that somehow? I, they don't maybe have enough language to tell jokes. Yeah, and this is a very controversial topic to, because you could ask, well, if the animals laugh, do they have senses of humor? And I mean, some people would say no. I'm of the persuasion that the answer is yes. And part of the reason why we don't see it is because it's hard to find out what an ape thinks is funny. I mean, they don't have language, so how would you know? But there is one very famous story of Washoe, uh, the chimp, who was one day sitting on her uh, handler's shoulders. And all of a sudden, just without warning, she began to pee. 
And uh, Washoe had been trained sign language. And so, you know, there was a close relationship between her and her handler. And the handler looked up and saw that Washoe was making the sign for funny. And so the joke essentially was on the handler. You know, the, the joke was that she was she was peeing on him on purpose and thought it was funny. And so I think that's a good example of what ape humor would be like if we understood on it. It probably involves a lot of things like like urinating on each other, I guess. Wow. Well, I, I can think of a lot of, uh, I don't know, humor genres that are kind of broadly based bodily functions and so forth. I guess we're not all that different, really. Yeah, it's not that far from a Johnny Knoxville skit, I guess. <laughs> well, okay, Scott, let's bring back Brian Mallow with another <laughs> science joke. And, okay. and I'd like your reaction to tell me whether you think that this joke would um, appeal to a very wide audience. I shouldn't even laugh. I mean, we're, we're all getting older, right? We are. I know I am. I, I already have gray hair. Uh, plenty of it too. I don't really care though. I don't care. I don't care if it goes all gray. I don't care if it goes blue. You know. I don't care if it goes ultraviolet. <laughs> In fact, if I uh, lose my hair, that's what I'm gonna say. I'm not bald. I have hair. It's just outside your visible spectrum. <laughs> Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> that that joke kind of assumes you know something about the electromagnetic spectrum, of course. Uh, yeah, it does. And it is funny that the same kind of humor as you might see in the Big Bang Theory television show, where the jokes kind of assume that there's some sort of scientific knowledge. And I think people enjoy that because it makes them feel smart when they get the joke. Yeah. But it does get to a point that you write about, namely that jokes can be very idiosyncratic. Yeah, very much so. I mean, what might be very funny to one person could be just grossly offensive to another. And it's almost impossible to tell sometimes. And it turns out that jokes that are kind of on that in-between stage of, of edginess tend to be the funniest when you look at, you know, whole populations of people. And so that's why jokes that are really racy, there's going to be a certain set of people that love that. And uh, there are going to be a lot that are that are just turned off by it. And the same thing of the other direction. I mean, there's there's a reason Jay Leno is, is relatively popular with some people, but not with others because it's relatively tame. It's not too edgy. And so there's kind of a sweet spot. And so maybe maybe science humor is closer to that sweet spot. Maybe that's why it's popular now. And what about the ability of humor to cross international borders? You know, I sort of wonder, has anybody identified a joke that makes essentially every culture laugh? Yeah, funny you bring that up. There's actually a scientist, his name is Richard Wiseman from Britain, who basically did just that. He, he held a study uh, where he asked people from all across the world, what, what do you think is the funniest joke? And he had people both submit their own favorites and, and rank other people's. And from that, he found what he thought was the funniest joke in, or what science showed was the funniest joke in the world based on, on these ratings. Well, i got to ask, do you remember the joke? Of course, I was going to make you ask me to tell it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the joke. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I guess it could be. Uh, so two hunters are walking in the woods, and uh, all of a sudden one of them just falls to the ground, and his eyes are glazed over, and his mouth is open. He's not breathing. And so the other hunter's panicked, and he calls 911. And the operator picks up, yes, sir, what's your emergency? And the hunter says, oh, my gosh, I think my friend is dead. What do I do? And the operator says, okay, sir, calm down first. I need you to check and make sure that he's dead. And there's a pause in the other end of the line. And then suddenly there's a bam. And then the guy comes back and he says, all right, that's done. Now what? I see. Okay, that's, that, that's the that's one you science. should tell when you're on travel, I, I take it. Yeah, and here, here you get to the, uh, it's going to be a little mediocre when you ask millions of people across the world what's the favorite joke because it's not going to be too edgy and I don't know. So what's the common denominator that makes that appealing to just about anybody? Sure. I mean, you've got a little bit of edginess to it. I mean, the, the joke ends with this hunter shooting his friend, so that's certainly a little dark. But it's not so dark that you're put off by it and you think it could actually happen or you think that it's actually espousing hunter violence or something like that. So it's, it's probably close to that sweet spot of in-between edginess that people find a little engaging, fun, but not threatening. And I, certainly since that changes by nationality, I'm guessing that that's probably the right amount of edginess across the globe. One of the uh, very common discussions being held in society these days is the idea of artificial intelligence, computers that can do things that uh, up until now only we could do. So here's a question. Uh, can the computers write good jokes and save the, the, the comics a whole lot of homework? Yeah, it turns out the computers can tell some decent jokes. Um, what kind of murderer has moral fiber? A serial killer. <laughs> Have it for breakfast. So, so... <laughs> So how did the computer come up with that? I mean, what rules was it given to formulate that joke? 
Uh, sure. Well, it's not that difficult to teach a computer some basic word meanings and to understand that serial can have more than one meaning. And so can moral fiber. Uh, at least, you know, fiber in that context has more than one meaning. And so all it takes is teaching on computer these different words and how they have different meanings and looking for unusual overlaps. And so it's just basically making new associations that you wouldn't normally make. In this case, what does moral fiber really mean? And it's not terribly challenging, but what is challenging is teaching a computer to recognize a joke and understand why that combination is funny. So the problem here is that while the computers can be taught to write jokes, particularly if they're fairly formulaic, they can't be relied upon to judge which are the good ones, which ones should be in the monologue on the late night show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why is that? Why are they so bad at knowing what's funny and what's not? Because humans are pretty good at that. Yeah, well, it has a lot to do with world knowledge, that a computer can make these associations in, in the word meanings, like with the moral fiber joke. But understanding and having the world knowledge on why it's funny and how that fits within the, the greater scheme of understanding, you know, for what it means to be a serial killer, that's something that computers aren't able to do yet, which is amazing because they can drive our cars and play chess and even win at Jeopardy. But Getting to understand humor, that requires understanding multiple levels of meaning of language and how it fits within just our greater world. And that's something that computers don't have yet. And I think when they have that and when they have a sense of humor, then they'll be truly intelligent or at least a new version of intelligence because they'll be able to comprehend things that are more subtle than just brute force computation. Scott Weems, thanks so much for uh, speaking with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Scott Weems is a cognitive neuroscientist, and he's the author of Ha! The Science of When We Laugh and Why. Thanks to comedian Brian Mallow for regaling us with science-based jokes. In fact, we called him for a few more. Hello. Hi, Brian. It's Molly Bentley from Big Picture Science. Yes. You still doing stand-up comedy? Absolutely. Okay, well, we just delighted our audience with some of your best science jokes. And <laughs> can you lay a couple of your favorite science jokes on us, some of the current ones? Hmm. Um, I can't just choose one. Let me give you a couple. Like, I love 3D movies. I like Avatar. I'm really looking forward to the sequel. The next Avatar movie is actually in 11D. It's the string theory version. <laughs> um, uh, did I ever tell you I went to a magnet school for bipolar students? <laughs> What's the hardest, most difficult science joke that you have? Can you lay that on us? Okay. Uh, there are some jokes that I don't get to do that often. For instance, here's one. So before the show tonight, uh, the people that hired me asked me if, if I could be off the cuff. And I said, I'm so spontaneous, I have a negative delta G. Now, you didn't laugh and you shouldn't laugh because that is only a joke for chemists. No, I couldn't, and, even, uh, I couldn't even politely giggle. Okay, it's a chemist yeah. joke. Can you explain it to us in, in, yeah, in one sentence? Another, well, yeah, but just about. It's another pun on the term spontaneous. Spontaneity is a measure of how easily chemical reactions happen. And the delta G is that measure. So if I have a negative delta G, a reaction that has a negative delta G is very spontaneous. It happens easily. Some reactions you have to put energy into to make them happen. But if I have a negative delta G, that means I'm very spontaneous. Of course, you just broke, if not the first, but one of the first rules of, of joke-telling, which is never... <laughs> Never explain your joke afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help to have to. But what you do is you know your audience. So I don't tell that joke unless I'm performing for the American Chemical Society. <laughs> well, Brian Mello, I'm glad that someone is in charge of keeping the chemists laughing. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, great talking to you too, Molly. For the four of you who are members of the American Chemical Society out there who did laugh at the I have a negative delta G punchline, well, now you at least know what your brain was doing when you did. So it seems as though humor is not so straightforward. It actually embeds many different emotions. For one, it helps us deal with anxiety. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It has survival value, obvious survival value, and just doing that. Also, you know, allowing social interaction, which also has survival value. So I guess it's not surprising that we laugh a lot. And although he says that there's a universal joke, I would bet that not everybody found the one about the hunter funny. While laughter might be universal, what makes us laugh is not. Scott Weems said that the future for computer-driven comedy looks dim. Okay, so your laptop may never crack you up. But one day, it may know when you're feeling happily confused. As we are on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. 
Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. For a long time, cognitive scientists who study the origins of emotion in the brain confine themselves to six basic emotions. There's surprise. Oh, look, they're selling kumquats. Happy. I love kumquats. Sad. Oh, these are all bruised. There's disgust. Ew, they're not bruises, they're worms. Also fearful. Oh, no, a worm fell onto my pants. Get it off of me. Get it off of me. And angry. Hey, what kind of business are you running here with worms dropping off fruit and stuff? And scientists adopted these half-dozen emotions because they thought that facial expressions fell into self-evident categories. But it turns out that the brain has more than six categories for facial expression. In fact, it has more than triple that. And all 21 facial expressions can be identified by a computer program designed by cognitive scientist Aleish Martinez and his team at The Ohio State University. In their lab, volunteers displayed for a camera connected to a computer a range of emotions, some subtle combinations of those basic six. And those included happily surprised. Flowers? For me? Angrily surprised. What? They're for Bob? Again? And things like sadly surprised, fearfully angry, fearfully disgusted, angrily disgusted. Well, you get the idea. Our facial muscles contract involuntarily to express these complex feelings. And Dr. Martinez's research suggests that humans are remarkably consistent in how those muscles do it. He's designing a computer program that can identify distinct facial expressions so that he can correlate them with the neural pathways that produce them. And doing so might help in the diagnosis of emotional disturbance or impairment. And that possibility makes Aleish Martinez happy. Aleish, it turns out that human facial expressions are more varied than we thought. Now, you've mapped a whole series of emotional states that perhaps we were unfamiliar with, and some are contradictory. I wonder if you could describe for me the emotion of happily disgusted. Absolutely. This is actually one of my favorite. So it seems contradictory when you think about them, but they're not. It just happens that you can experience a combination of emotions simultaneously. So if I tell you a really disgusting joke and you're going to make this uh, grimace that um, you feel the disgusted effect of the joke, but at the same time, you can't stop yourself from laughing because it's just so funny. That's when you experience both emotions simultaneously. Okay, so that's happily disgusted. Is that emotion? That's right. <laughs> okay. What is your emotion at this moment? Um, I'm pretty happy. Just okay. flat. <laughs> okay, just happy. Maybe with any luck, we can get you happily disgusted by the end of the, <laughs> this d- discussion. Now, what, what happens to the face during this emotion? We're picking this one, although you've studied many emotions. But in happily disgusted, what happens to the face? Right. So in happily disgusted, what you would observe, it's the classical wrinkles around the nose. And there is this uh, movement of the nose toward the eyes, like you're closing your nostrils. You don't want to breathe in that disgusting smell. But at the same time, you're smiling. Your mouth is open. Which cheeks are puffed. And the cheeks are puffed because you're smiling. Now, if you asked me to do that with my face, just gave instructions to Mm -hmm. puff out your cheeks and wrinkle your nose and furrow your brow, I don't know if I could do it. But of course, we do it involuntarily. That's right. So when we talk about uh, different emotion categories that we have identified, what we need to show is not that they may exist, but that each of us expresses them in the same way, suggesting that it's a strong biological root that we all share. In the example that you just gave, a computer can recognize all those facial distortions, and it is able to identify the emotion. Is that right? How is it doing that? That's correct. Um, So what we do, we build these computational models. 
it's kind of a simulation of what your brain would be doing. So in the case of face recognition for the identity, for recognition of identity, we already knew that people pay a lot of attention to what's called configurable features. Configurable features are the ones that relate the distances that relate between different facial components. So there'd be the distance between the eyes and the brow and the eyes and the nose, the nose and the mouth, and so on. We can implement this in a computer and simulate the recognition of emotion as if the computer were just another human. Just as an aside, or maybe it's actually intrinsic to all of this, how many muscles are there in the face? Do we know? I Yes, I believe it's 41. 41. So they're moving in concert depending on what's happening, and you're getting just this wide range of human expression. So that's exactly right. So what happens is we have a lot of facial muscles. So the number of combinations that we could produce, the number of facial expressions we could produce is very, very large. As you were training your computer to recognize a number of these novel expressions, you use live volunteers. I mean, that's the only kind of volunteer we really want to work with, but meaning you use humans in front of the computer, they weren't photographs. That's right. Okay, That's right. so you had humans making all these faces. Well, what did you say to your volunteers to produce, say, a sadly fearful expression? Sadly fearful, that's one of the expressions. What did you say to them? For any of these facial expressions, what we have to do, we have to collect them in a control environment so we can control pose, we can control illumination, so we know that there are no other variables that can bias our results. So what we do, we just have a set of different uh, scenarios that we list uh, to them, that we have listed and that we post to them. And once they do that, they have a mirror and they can practice the expression that they express in such a situation. And when they feel comfortable that they can produce this, I would say as naturally as possible, then that's when we take the pictures. So what did you evoke in them or what did you say to them so they could produce uh, the emotion sadly fearful? So one of the possible scenarios that you could have is when a close friend or a family member actually makes something that makes you feel really fearful, but at the same time you feel sad because this is something that's coming from someone who you not expect to do this kind of things to you. Well, say more about the reason why you're doing this. I mean, this computer program is not a tool for actors, although perhaps it could be used that way. But your team at Ohio State University wants to track the genetic and chemical pathways that govern emotion. How can a computer recognition program tell us anything about our DNA or chemistry or what's happening inside the human body? There are many emotional disorders out there that have been defined, dozens of them, that are very poorly understood. Uh, to take autism as just a single example, ASD, it's a set of possible disorders. And if we don't have enough variables to define the variabilities between these different groups, it's going to be very hard to know exactly how to treat or how to help different individuals. And since the model understands where the differences between, say, autistics versus subjects with post-traumatic stress disorder or subjects with clinical depression, then the computer can help a clinician do a quick diagnosis of these disorders based on the way you interact with it. So you're saying that you could use this computer program as a diagnostic tool. It might be trained to look at the face of the person, of the patient, and it can determine by the facial expressions whether or not this person is autistic or perhaps experiencing post-traumatic stress or some other disorder. Correct. So uh, two things. Uh, the computer would be looking at the facial expression of the subject, but at the same time, the computer would be asking the participant to classify some images that are shown on the screen. So the computer could be showing you know, a variety of different facial expressions of emotion, and then subjects would classify them according to some given labels. And we can hypothesize now, for example, that subjects with PTSD would be biased towards uh, facial expressions of fear and anger. So they're probably very good at fearfully angry. They'll be good at fearfully sad and angrily disgusted. But they'll be probably poor at recognition of uh, compound emotions that involve happiness. So basically what we want to understand is what are the 
differences in the processing of these different emotions compared to neurotypicals. And once we understand that, we can go ahead and try to determine which are the neural differences at the neural level or the chemical differences that occur that allow for these differences in competition and also help develop better behavioral therapies and probably down the line design better medication. Well, is it possible that a computer could be fooled by a human subject? In other words, can a, can a computer detect deceit? Does it know if, for example, I smile and I'm actually very angry? And, and actually, that's a, that's a human response, too. Sometimes we smile with gritted teeth and we're actually angry. So could you fool a computer and, and be angry and yet smile? And would it be able to detect what you're really feeling? So right now, you can fool the computer pretty well. And actually, you can fool another person as well. Humans are especially good at lying. But eventually, I think that if we follow that path, if that's the path that we wanted to follow, we could get computers to detect the details on the differences between faked smiles and more naturalistic or realistic smiles. And computers can actually detect when you're lying. Well... Can I ask you what your emotional state is now that we're wrapping up the end of this discussion? I'm happily surprised. I think that's been a very nice interview. Well, Dr. Martinez, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Aleish Martinez is a cognitive neuroscientist at The Ohio State University. Okay, so the idea here is that we have a number of facial expressions and we all express them the same way. Yeah, well, that's the assumption underlying this. I mean, he's sort of talking about what could eventually become an app that you could have on your smartphone or whatever and just aim it at somebody who's talking to you and you would be able to diagnose their emotional state. But he's, of course, interested in disease. And his work is predicated on this idea, though, that facial expression has universal meaning. Yeah, well, they're sort of like those supposedly also universal highway signs. You know, the one that shows a car with a couple of wavy lines underneath it suggesting there's slippery pavement ahead. But I got to tell you, when I first saw one of those signs, I figured there was just a car ahead of me on springs. You really thought, were you five years old? No, I wasn't. <laughs> well, this was in Europe. I didn't know what their signs that's were true. like. That's true. They have crazy cars over there. Well, One of them could be on springs. Well, that's right. I thought, <laughs> the point being that while it's neat that a computer can recognize 21 different states of mind by just looking at our faces, maybe we're fooling ourselves thinking that we're all open books and, and that we're all on the same page. Or on the same metaphor. Maria Gendron is a postdoctoral researcher at Northeastern University, and she doesn't think that we're all on the same page or that our facial expressions are universal road signs, as her research with the Himba tribe in Namibia in southern Africa suggests. So the Himba live in a very remote region of Namibia. So they live on the border of Angola in a pretty mountainous uh, region. And most of the individuals from the Himba culture don't really travel outside of their immediate communities very often. There are some signs of contact with the rest of the world. So some people carry around cell phones. But for the most part, most of the people from the Himba culture really remain within their culture. So it's relatively insular compared to a lot of the other cultures that have been tested in emotion science. Well, a half century ago, people were looking for groups of people that were somewhat isolated for various you know, studies and so forth. I, I take it there aren't too many of these left. No, certainly not. So as the globe becomes more connected, we have a challenge on our hands as psychologists to find cultures that are uh, relatively untouched in the sense that we do not have a ton of cultural exposure from one group to the other. Well, you wanted to see whether human emotions were truly universal. So how did the Himba help you out? How did you put them to the test here to investigate your hypothesis? We showed pictures of African-American individuals who were posing different emotional expressions. Um, and in the very sort of caricatured or canonical style that's typical of Western psychology experiments. So you could say these faces are quite exaggerated. And give me an example of the kind of emotions. I mean, I presume you had some smiling, some frowning, what, looking puzzled. I mean, 
describe some of these photos to me? Sure. So I think that one of the most interesting photos is uh, perhaps the fear expression, which has a very widened eye. Um, the eyebrows are often raised. And the mouth can hang open a little bit. Even the neck appears to be pulled back slightly, right? So it almost appears that the person is gasping in. They look like they're really taking in information from the environment. So that's your canonical fear face. And each of the different expressions that we looked at, so we looked at poses of anger, fear, sadness, disgust, um, neutral, happiness. Each of these poses have very prototypical facial behaviors that are associated with them in our culture. Okay. So you, you show them these photos, and what are they asked to do? So the task was fairly simple. We gave the participants a set of photographs, and we asked them just to sort them by feeling. So put people into a pile together who are displaying the same emotion or the same internal feeling. So this is something that we've done quite a bit in participants here in the U.S., in Boston. And so we took the same task and we wanted to see what happens when individuals from a visually isolated culture see Western-style faces. Do they sort them the same way? And what was the bottom line? The bottom line was that they really did not sort them the same way. So the most consistency that we saw was really for happy faces. So those were really placed into a single pile by most of our HIMBA participants. But beyond that, there was a huge amount of variability. So for example, we would see even fear expressions with very widened eyes being placed into a pile with neutral expressions. And one of the ways that that pile might be labeled by a HIMBA participant is that the people are looking at something. So there was consistency in the sense that they were making meaningful piles, but they just weren't piles that were the same as those that the participants here in Boston would make. Well, okay. I mean, I have to say this is very surprising, and I, I suppose you were surprised as well, but that's, Absolutely. <laughs> that's the nature of science. You sometimes try and prove the obvious and come up with something entirely new. Well, obviously, the human face can contort in a variety of ways. We can scowl. I can knit my eyebrows somewhat, turn up my mouth, turn it down, whatever. Cultures are interpreting them differently, it sounds like. And to me, that that sort of indicates that our facial expressions as, if you will, mirrors or insights into what we're feeling are not so hardwired. Absolutely. That's certainly the implication of this type of research. So while we're only testing perception, right, what do people see in the faces of others, we can extrapolate to other contexts, right? So if we are not perceiving consistent emotion in these faces across cultures, it may be the case that the actual faces that people make vary. And this is the source of these perception differences. Maria, to what extent would this cultural dependence on interpreting emotions play out even in our own society? I mean, do you, do you think that we frequently mistake one another's emotional states because we're misreading their faces? Absolutely. I think I like to think of emotion perception as an inference as opposed to a readout. We're constantly using a whole stream of cues, some of them from the face, some of them from the voice, the body, our own expectations, what someone's saying. There's a whole array of information that we are using to understand someone else's state. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we actually may have more of a sense, really, of the category of emotion that someone should be experiencing than they do themselves. So I think it's a much more complex picture than simple recognition of a clear expression on the face. Well, I guess that if I'm in email contact with a Himba, I shouldn't use uh, my emoticons. Well, yes, maybe you ought to think twice. Maria Gendron, thank you so very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Maria Gendron is a postdoc researcher at Northeastern University in Boston. So how we reveal emotion is shaped by culture and context. But Temple Grandin, a person with autism, well, she says she doesn't even experience the emotions that most people do. And that's next. We're happily confused on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. 
New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We've been hearing how the expression of emotions can vary and even be ambiguous, but there's an underlying assumption here that the experience of emotion itself is universal. We all feel the same emotions, even if we reveal them in different ways. But Temple Grandin says she does not experience the emotions that others do. A professor at Colorado State University, Dr. Grandin is a world-renowned animal scientist and also, just as famously, an autistic. Diagnosed with autism at age two, she says she was considered alternatively brain-damaged or slow by doctors and her classmates. But she had supportive mentors, and she went on to get her Ph.D. in animal science. She's now one of the most visible proponents of animal welfare and the rights of people with autism. And she says that there's a direct connection. Dr. Grandin claims that having autism has narrowed her own experience of emotion, but allowed her to identify intimately with the emotional lives of animals. Her insight into the minds of cattle, for example, has led her to recognize in what situations the animals are most highly sensitive and design more humane animal handling systems. Believing that an animal, even one raised to be slaughtered, should not spend its last moments in sheer terror. Temple Grandin became well-known after being profiled by Oliver Sacks in his book, An Anthropologist on Mars. And although she was already speaking publicly about autism, his profile helped catapult her into science celebrity. She's now in demand as a public speaker, has written many books about the emotional lives of animals, including Animals Make Us Human, and her experience with autism, an experience that lacks the sort of complex emotion that others have. Temple, what animals are your companions these days? Well, I've always really liked beef cattle. And when I was in high school, it was horses. Unfortunately, today I'm traveling so much I can't have any animals. I'm pretty much my companions, the airplane these days. (laughs) You, of course, have written and spoken publicly about how your autism has helped you figure out and understand how animals think and feel. And part of this has to do with being what you call a visual thinker. What does that mean? Well, I think completely in pictures. In other words, in order to have thought, I've got to have pictures. Well, there's no way an animal is is thinking in words. You know, he's going to be thinking in little smell sensations. He's going to be thinking in pictures, thinking in little audio clips. Well, I wonder what we can determine about what emotions animals have. And what is our understanding right now of the range of emotions that animals experience? Well, animals definitely have emotions. And the neuroscience literature makes it very clear that animals have emotions. Jack Panskap has written about this extensively for many, many years. And Dr. Panskap has said they've got fear, and that's located in the amygdala. Then there is separation distress. This is the emotion when the dog is left home alone and it's scratching at the door and whining. And that's a different brain system than fear. Then you've got seeking. That's the urge to go out and explore. Then you've got rage. That's the emotion that enables you to get the predator off of you when it's killing you. Other emotions are mother-young nurturing. That's the oxytocin system. Play. And then, of course, sex. And these things are very well documented. You know, they've got some of the same basic emotions that we have. Now, the big difference is we've got this gigantic cortex. So those emotional drivers are influencing things in a much more complicated way because we've got a gigantic computer sitting up there. You know, that dog just doesn't have as much computing power. You know, the other thing with animals, it's more in the present. You know, the dog can be growling one minute, wagging his tail the next minute. Animals don't seem to hold grudges quite the same way that um, people do. And do you identify with that, uh, being in the present with your yeah, emotions? Yeah, I can, I can identify with that. You know, let's say somebody's done something bad to me. You know, I've got colleagues that uh, in the past I hated them because they did some really bad things to me. Now I'm working with that colleague, and we actually are on the same wavelength on a lot of things. Now I'm always a little bit wary. I haven't forgotten what happened in the past. But I don't seem to hold the grudge quite the same way that, that a lot of people do. Human emotion can be mixed, and this is also something that you've written about. Uh, Humans can have mixed emotions. They can have love-hate relationships. They can have ambivalence. But you don't feel that. 
No, I'm, things are much more straightforward with me. And one of the things that just shocks me is just how irrational people are on certain issues like politics. And I've actually read some of the research that shows in certain situations, people just shut off their frontal cortex and they just don't think. And the frontal cortex is the rational part of the brain. That's the rational part of the brain, yes. And in an autistic person, is that that part of the brain is especially strong, or how would you describe it? Well, it, it uh, there's some you know there's some social circuits that aren't hooked up, but one of the things I'm able to do in thinking is I can say, okay, let's just look at this completely rationally, and I can shut down emotion, you know. And the other thing is I can play back, you know, previously very upsetting experiences, like when I had to do an emergency a landing in a plane and we had to go down the slides. I can play that back like a movie. It's like watching a movie. Now, the emotion was very scary in the present. I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. But now when I play it back, it's like watching a movie. Do we understand why an autistic brain works in the way that it does? Does it have to do with the, the kinds of connections, the number of connections? Yes, there are extra circuits in my brain for visual thinking. And uh, it's larger than, you know, most people. Also, the... Uh, circuit in my brain for speak what you see. There's extra branches that go all over my brain, and that might explain why when you give me a key word, I start to get pictures like Google for images. And I'd like you to give me a key word, and I'll tell you how my brain accessed the information, but I'm sitting at my desk now, so don't ask me something that would be in an office, and don't ask me something common like house or car. Be a little more creative. Well, okay, I'll, I'll throw out a couple. So how about thunderstorm? Thunderstorms? Well, I'm seeing a paper right now we're working on on thundershirts. I'm just working on right now. Um, I'm now uh, seeing pictures in my mind of some very violent uh, thunderstorms that I've experienced in the past. I am now seeing a picture of uh, my assistant's dog that ran away during a fireworks display. That's sort of like a thunderstorm. So all of these images just come into your brain quickly? Yeah, well, they come in sequentially. Sequentially. You know, then I can stop on an image and uh, make a video out of it. Now, visual thinking is a continuum. I mean, there's plenty of people that are not autistic that are visual thinkers. I'm just on the extreme end of visual thinking. I'd like to give ask you just another example on your ability to come up your not your ability, but your natural tendency to come up with images. We said thunderstorms. What if I give you an abstract word like bewilderment? bewilderment. I'm now getting some inappropriate images of a wilderness that I saw in Germany, and I'm getting all these kind of forest stuff, U.S. Forest Service pictures, and I know that's completely inappropriate, and I know that's not what the word actually means. Bewilderment means kind of baffled. Uh, well, it means, it means someone can't figure something out. So now I've got to pull up some images of situations where a person couldn't find a solution to a problem because they were baffled. Now, Temple, to deal with some of the emotions that you had as a young woman, you built something called a squeeze box. What was this? It, this gave you a hug? Well, I um, when I got into puberty, I started having horrendous panic attacks and anxiety, just horrendous. And I was out at my aunt's ranch, and the next-door neighbor was working some cattle, and I noticed that when they put them in the cattle squeeze chute, some of the animals tended to just kind of relax. So I built a thing that was like a cattle squeeze chute that I could get into. It would squeeze me on both sides of my body, but I could control it. So was it like a hug? But Yeah, no, I was, basically. You wanted the physical sensation of a hug, but you did not want a human to touch you. No, it wasn't a problem with the human touching me. The problem was this is strictly sensory oversensitivity, which is a problem in autism and other developmental problems, where uh, a sensation is just too intense. And by using a squeezing machine, I was able to desensitize myself. So now I like being hugged by people. Well, you've written and you've mentioned that um, one of the emotions you carried with you for most of your young life was fear. Well, my uh, body was in a constant state of fear, and my amygdala, or fear center, a brain scan showed that that was larger than normal. Um, also, there's been some sensory research that's shown that in some individuals with autism, when they experience a sensation that they can't tolerate, like a loud noise, it turns on the fear center. The fear and the fear of being dismissed, you've written, is what led you into becoming active in animal welfare. Well, and, when and I was in my 20s, a lot of people thought I was uh, retarded and stupid. 
And one thing that made me work really hard in my 20s on some of those early jobs was I wanted to prove to people I wasn't stupid. And I'd go to an agricultural engineering meeting, and the engineers wouldn't want to talk to me because they thought I was weird and crazy. And I'd take out my drawings, and I'd show them my drawings. And when they looked at my drawings, then I got respect. Why? What were your drawings like? Drawings of cattle handling facilities and very elaborate drawings that showed all the detail of exactly how to do the steel and concrete work. So in your case, you were designing these, uh, for example, slaughterhouses that would so that animals weren't, weren't feeling this fear. Well, animals, I found, behave the same at slaughterhouses as they behave on ranches. You know, when animals get scared at slaughterhouses, it's novelty. Suddenly being placed in a novel environment, that's really, really scary. And then I did a lot of work on designing restraint devices for holding animals. And one of the big problems that people did with restraining devices is they try to squash the animal too hard with the hydraulics. You know, you don't have to squeeze it that hard to hold it. I designed things where I controlled the amount of pressure that the device applied. Finally, Temple, we've heard earlier in the show about how many facial expressions the the human face has. Are you able to read the emotion off another person's face? Do you feel like you're pretty good at that? Or Well, I had to learn it. I didn't even know that people, when they roll their eyes, that that means that they, they're not happy with what you're thinking until I um, read about it in a book when I was 50 years old. Um, you see, there's certain social circuits that aren't hooked up, and you've got to teach social skills. So you had to learn how to read facial expressions. It wasn't self-evident to you. No, no, I had to. Now, obviously, if somebody's screaming mad, I understood that, or someone's laughing out loud, I, the really overt, you know, expression of emotion, yeah, that understood. But the more subtle things, I didn't pick up. Temple Grandin, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was great to be on the show. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and author of many books, including Animals Make Us Human, Creating the Best Life for Animals. You know, it was really a pleasure to talk to Temple Grandin. She is so open about her experience as an animal behaviorist, but also as as a woman with autism. Yeah. Well, I think what I've learned from this show is that the most quintessential human activities, literature, art, music, these all appeal to our emotional side. And we just assume everybody has the same reaction. And what we've learned is there's as much variety in that as there is in human personality. Are you going to continue opening your science lectures with jokes? You bet. (laughs) Well, thanks to our emotionally stable production team, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlock. Also support from Google, also Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Happily Confused, and you can continue your emotional relationship with Big Picture Science by browsing our archive on iTunes and through the links on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it gives you a bigger emotional hit, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, consider letting them know that you like the show. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.